welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. With me today is Devin. Devin, what have you been up to? Uh, lately, just been doing my business. Just been, uh, you know, watching tutorials, going out in the blizzard that is Chicago right now, capturing some beautiful stock footage, and uh, been dealing with headaches of trying to host a RAID configuration inside of my own computer. Uh-oh, are you using a native <laughs> RAID controller on the motherboard, or are you... Yep, the onboard motherboard RAID controller. Egads, man. <laughs> Egads. It's been nothing but a nightmare. I've, you know, when I first started uh, uh, trying to set up RAID drives for bigger projects, I thought, oh man, I'll buy this motherboard with eight ST, uh, SATA ports yep. on there that has like a, a RAID chip built in. And it worked great for maybe six months or five months. And then it started just mm-hmm. doing some really weird stuff like, boot times went all over the place like drives were showing up as not working that you know they were reporting just fine and all kinds of stuff i finally uh bought or bit the bullet and paid i think it was like 80 or 120 dollars for one of those uh plug yeah exactly and those have so many more features they're easier to set up they don't significantly impact your boot time, like the better whole, recovery options too. Yep. They usually have onboard caching, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, they're just generally all around a good thing to do, <laughs> man. So I haven't got around to buying the bullet and getting one of those, but I probably will after this. I was up all last night copying data off of it and trying to reconfigure it and reinitialize it, and it's just clear that uh, the motherboard's just tired of me trying to do that. Oh yeah, that's that's horrible. Uh, the other thing to look at. I know a lot of people complain about it because it's a proprietary format, but uh, the um, Dobro, or am I saying that right? I think one's one's a guitar and one's the RAID system. (laughs) Uh, The non-guitar version, those uh, four-bay units, they're down to like $300 for the third and fourth gen. I think they're on the fourth gen now. And they're USB 3.0, and they can saturate a USB 3.0 connection. And they're really good about, even though they don't use a normal RAID format, they're really good about rebuilding. They're really good about handling your data. And mm-hmm. I've seen tests on them where people have just yanked hard drives out and put new ones in of multiple sizes and everything else and still had no problem recovering their data. So they're really solid and they're pretty affordable if you already have a string of hard drives laying around. Well, and even so, there was just a sale last week for those uh, Western Digital Reds. Yeah. I love my Western Digital. There was uh, three terabytes, like three of them or something, for 600 or something. Oh, nice. It was, a, it was a really good deal on them. I don't know why they're packaged in threes, but I guess if you want to do a RAID 5 or something, it's there. Yeah, I'm kind of um, I'm bad about the hard drives I use. I picked <laughs> up a bunch of, of cheaper-end Hitachi drives. And I know, right, the Death Stars um, could be the Death Star, I suppose. But I have enough of them in um, RAID Z that I'm running in my FreeNAS server that Mm -hmm. I've only had, in the last two years or so of using it, I've only had one drive get a little bit fishy. And I have enough redundancy that it's never been a big issue. So while they're not really rated for that sort of application, they've held up pretty strong no and and i know people give hitachi and uh seagate you know a lot of flack and seagate's gone better i feel like everyone's gone better on the whole uh everyone's just scared of uh the whole quantum fireball whatever they called that way back in the day yeah. that failed on every single low-end computer that somebody bought well and i did uh, have some uh some seagate drives that uh early on 
And if you look at the serial numbers, you can determine which ones are which. But if they're like 0001 right before they list the serial number, those mm-hmm. were having issues where if the RAID went to sleep and then came back up again, it would mm-hmm. intermittently report a drive failure before you know, picking back up because it didn't, they don't all come on simultaneously. They like kind right. of come up however they, they come up and there's no protection internally for them to, to, you know, keep track of the other drives or to, you know, report back when they're up right. and running. So that was the only issue I really ran into with those. Um, I know other people have, have said that the uh, controllers on the hard drives themselves would do some other wacky stuff and like not write data properly. Yeah. And if you lost power, something would go sideways. Yeah, that, that's why I've always been big on Western Digital. I know people in the industry, they love those, um, uh, what do they call it, GeForce drives or uh, yeah. the Apple-looking drives. But Western Digital, I've got some servers that are running 6 gigabyte Western Digital drives since, you know, the early 2000s. They're wow. chugging along just fine. Western Digital's just always been a great company and uh, a solid brand, so I always look for those kind of deals. I know the other people, Samsung is doing good stuff with their uh, solid states and everything else. But when it comes to mechanical, I feel like Western Digital is a sure bet. Have you tried any of the um, hybrid drives that the I believe Seagate's offering a few of them where they have basically an 8 or a 12 gig SSD piggybacked on top of a 1 terabyte uh, 2.5 millimeter drive? I, I've used it a bit in uh, laptops. Yeah. And for that, it works well. Uh, for any kind of desktop application, solid states are so small that it doesn't make sense to me. To stick the two together, uh, just when you're looking for raw performance, it's, it's one thing to speed up like an old computer, still provide some data, give it to you know a family member or something like that. But when it comes to editing and doing your own production work, uh, there's just not enough performance boost. It helps with booting up the operating system, maybe one or two pieces of software, and that's where the speed ends. Yeah, the SSDs so. are definitely the way to go if you're editing large amounts of data. It is so yes. nice to get RAID speeds out of a single 2.5 millimeter <laughs> drive. It's awesome. Or get really crazy and you stripe those. Oh, I'm not that brave. <laughs> um, if you look at, this is kind of off topic a little bit, but if you look at the controllers inside of some of these SSDs, they yeah. actually are doing RAID on the internal chips already. So now you're stacking like a RAID 0 on top of a RAID 0 on top of a RAID 0. to. Yo, bro, we heard you like raiding, so we put a RAID inside of your RAID so you could raid while you raid. Exactly. <laughs> it's like a RAID in here. Uh, it's crazy. And so I am a little bit nervous about raiding the one terabyte drives or the 500 gig drives together. I know um, MSI, mm-hmm. right out of the gate on some of their laptops, offer what they call like the super performance mode. And that's yeah. just basically like two 128 gig SSDs or two... Uh, 256 gig SSDs rated together so that you can max out two SATA ports as opposed to one. And it does give you really good speeds. They're, they're talking like uh, 800 and 900 reads and writes. But, yeah. man, if one of those fails, they both <laughs> fail. So, Well, and, and solid states are, are known for just one day giving up on you. It's gotten like a me- lot better, but, yeah, you're right, when the, me- especially the first generation mechanicals they have some smart data and when they start to fail one sector at a time you can kind of pick up on it and the bios may give you a little warning but solid states will just kind of one day be like nah i ain't turning on anymore <laughs> yep they, uh, the other thing too is a firmware update um sometimes i've had drives where i send a firmware update out to it and then bam mm-hmm. it's just a, a piece of of plastic i can't do anything with it anymore it is useless and that was really bad with the a data and some of the uh, earlier oh, drives yeah. It's not so much an issue now. I just upgraded the firmware on a, a couple of my Samsung drives 
uh, earlier this month, and it was smooth sailing, no issues at all. So, Well, that's definitely good. Yeah. All right, well, time to cue the new music. Time for the news. All right, up this week in the news, we've got the Dell UltraSharp 27-inch 5K monitor. This is a 5128 by 2880 screen that uses multi-stream transport technology to switch two 2560 by 2880 GPU outputs together into a 5K image. The price tag on this guy is looking to be about $2,500, which incidentally is about the same price as a medium-level iMac, which also sports a 5K screen. What do you think mm-hmm. about this 5K monitor? Uh, I actually think the price tag on it's really good. I mean, considering uh, 27 inches and 5K, uh, $2,500 seems really reasonable um, to add to your production suite. I don't, uh, of course, me as a video editor, I wouldn't have much interest in it. I know some other people who shoot 4K and edit 4K, they would love a monitor like this. Um, I think really, though, this would really be ideal for uh, photography. I mean, with um, image editing, image editing. Yeah, the DPI is so high. I mean, I feel like that's what photographers are after is trying to get, you know, something that's better than 300 DPI uh, because, you know, the average inkjet printer does 300, you know, uh, pixels per inch or dots per inch. So, you know, when you start dealing with that on your monitor, you can really start to get a sense of what the detail is at distance the same way that it would be printed. So I, if I was more in photography, I'd be jumping all over it. I know the GPU part is going to be probably a little obnoxious to get wired together, but most of that is not a hardware issue. It's a software issue. Mm-hmm. And NVIDIA is one of those that are on top of their software and always have been, whether you're running Linux, Mac, or Windows. So with that going on, I feel like that's going to be a non-issue, unlike the Asus tile screen that we had before, where that was kind of new hardware on both ends, both the graphics cards and the monitor, and that kind of ended up being meh. There was a big rush for both uh, AMD as well as NVIDIA to kick out updates for their, their drivers to support that sort of screen. NVIDIA only issued a driver support for the Asus monitor at that time, and I'm not sure how long it'll take them to catch up with something like this, this 5K monitor. The Ifinity display system that uh, AMD uses on their R9-290 and so on, it's pretty straightforward, so there wasn't a whole lot of issue in getting it going to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly, you run into issues with booting. The AMD drives, or the AMD uh, graphics cards, I found do really well with those sorts of multi-screen configurations when you're booting up your computer. But mm-hmm. for some reason, my NVIDIA cards don't play as well. I have a 4K panel and a couple of smaller panels on my upstairs editing bay that they're intermittent. Sometimes I use them, sometimes I don't. And with the Titan GPU I have in there, occasionally it just doesn't want to recognize the other monitors, and I have to unplug them and plug them back in again. And I don't know what is going on with that. Um, <laughs> maybe I just have, you know... Uh, the magnetic touch that destroys all things electronic, but uh, it's been a weird <laughs> thing that I've run into with the Titan series. No, and I'm I'm sure too. The main I think the main problem with running 5K is going to be uh, having enough memory in your graphics card. Uh, I think graphic card processors are up to point, but you you need what like six gigabytes in yeah. uh, video memory or something like that to drive 5K? For 4K, it's generally 4 gig is what you're looking for. 2 gig just won't cut it. So Yeah. 
So I feel like 5K, you probably need like six or eight gigs on your card to run that at speed without, you know, having an, without that being your bottleneck is the video memory. And I can't even think of any cards out right now except for those specialized uh, workstation cards that have that kind of size. Well, I think the, uh, the R9-290X comes in a three and a six gig variant. Or no, I'm looking right now, it comes in a four gig variant. So that's not too bad. And I'm looking at the specs here for the iMac which also sports a 5K screen, mm-hmm. and that's basically just a computer attached to the back of the monitor. And it yeah. looks like it's got an R9 uh, 290X mobile GPU inside of it. So I'm wondering if they crammed a little bit extra RAM on there. The thing about the iMac, though, and I'm not really a, um, an Apple guy. I'm a PC guy, but uh, mm-hmm. the thing is, is that's an entire computer uh, set up already to handle a 5K screen and ready to roll out of the package for 2500 bucks. while... This is just the monitor itself for $2,500. And it's a hard sell to tell people to switch from PC to, to Mac, but when you're looking at the price tag, you could put in, especially if you're working off of a networked uh, storage device, you could put in three or four of these 5K iMacs and have people edit on those and then just have centralized storage as opposed to worrying about trying to true, true. get it on I, each of the now, devices. I've never seen the 5K Macs in person but I have seen plenty of IMAX, and I've worked on plenty of IMAXs. And for me, the screen has always been garbage. That could be different with the 5K, because I haven't seen it in person. But I always remember the few times I've been forced to work on an IMAC, uh, the viewing angles have been crap, the uh, color response has been crap on them. And you, you can tell that the panel is where they cheap out on some of the money uh, to bring the price of that iMac down for consumers and home users and people who are interested in an all-in-one PC. So that that could be different with the 5K panel. And if, if you're right, then sure, you could load up Windows 2 on that iMac. That's true. And and uh, get some decent performance out of that because I'm sure the iMac's running like uh, one of the newer i7s. Uh, I like, think it uh, bases, base model's an i5. And then... Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is about Apple, but they always kind of skimp out on most of their <laughs> um, entry-level and mid-level models, and then they charge a premium. I think you're looking at almost $1,000 mm-hmm. to get to the i7 with 16 gigs of RAM and everything else. So, Yeah, because you're never going to be able to uh, swap out chips. They don't allow for that. Now, uh, Swapping out CPUs. MSI also offers something in the PC realm that's similar to this. It's a 2560 by 1440 panel. And I believe it's uh, 27 or 28 inches. And that is a mobile NVIDIA uh, GTX 980 inside basically a laptop strapped to the back of the screen. Mm-hmm. And it's got a handle on top. So it's supposed to be good for gamers who want to carry a beautiful screen and that's it. And it's the same form factor as this. It's 4K, as a, or I mean, it's 2560 by 1440 as opposed to 5K. But still, mm-hmm. those things are sitting in the... Uh, Twelve to fourteen hundred dollar price range, as opposed to twenty five hundred. So, if you're looking for an all in one, I don't know, maybe you're setting up three or four editing bays. Maybe that's the way to go. You know what? And I like the idea that it has a handle on it. That makes me think of uh, possibilities of using it for DIT or something like that. That's true. You can just carry it, set it up, and you know, have people check out the uh, footage as you're going. Yeah. All right. Next up on the list is the Sony Alpha Rumors has an interesting leaked image of the new Samyung 135mm f2 lens. The Samyung already offers up a 14, a 24, a 35, a 50, and an 85 length lens 
selection. Now they're going to put a 135 in there, and that's an F2. Is Samyung going to be the lens kit for low-budget filmmakers? And I've actually got a rundown right here looking at this because I was interested mm-hmm. when I started thinking about it. I'm like, wait a minute. They cover almost every focal length. If they get 135, they have the entire range from wide all the way up to you know uh, really close in. And yeah. the price for their current set, the 14 through the 85, if you bought those all new, and these are the non-cinema uh, versions because – Right. Honestly, most people can go buy a $15 a gear and strap it to their lens instead of paying an extra 120 or 130 bucks to have them built in. And yeah. these the whole set is uh, 1920 bucks. So sub $2000 for an entire set of primes all the way up to 85 millimeter. And if they come in at a good price on this 135, man, you're talking an entire set for maybe 2300 bucks. What do you think? I think that that's uh absolutely killer. Um, especially when you consider owning a set of primes, uh, which everyone considers to be the the hallmark of filmmaking is shooting on primes. Uh, for a lot of it, though, I feel like 135 uh, minus if you're shooting with a Sony. I mean, if you're shooting like you are with the Sony A7S or you're shooting with a 5D, something full frame, uh, 135 makes sense. Uh, but if you're shooting with anything else that's already APS-C or any kind of smaller sensor or a GH4 or something like that and you're adapting it, uh, you know, an 85 is already your telephoto at that point. It's, it's more about going a little wider. It'd be really cool um, to see them take a, make a faster 12 millimeter. I know that they've got a 12 millimeter, I think 3.8. And it would be nice to see a faster version of that, but that's not a lens that they consider in demand. Uh, from the looks of it, because they haven't updated that design in forever. And don't discredit the cinema series um, like that, because it's not just the gear. A part of it, too, is that you're getting the proper travel distance for the focus ring instead of having to spin it for days. And you're also getting a declicked aperture. And for some people, that's also really important. So you're right. You can do it yourself. Uh, but there is a reason why it does cost $100 more. It's not all marketing hype. So That is true. They do have to build different molds. And I'm supposing they're probably selling less of the cinema versions than their standard off-the-shelf models. Oh, I'm, I'm sure they are. The uh, declicking... I believe there's a method for almost all of these to declick the aperture. To I do know, it at home? Yeah. I'm not brave enough. I, 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 I know I'll scratch something. <laughs> there's one ball bearing that you have to take out of a tiny little slot about uh, three levels down on the top of the uh, glass. And I've mm-hmm. actually seen a few of them that were failed projects that are on eBay Ooh. right now where <laughs> it's, the, it's the lens, but it's missing the, the ring and all the top parts because they, they screwed up on something. They botched it. <laughs> yeah, so... That is something that you have to kind of be a little bit brave. But still, even if you add the cinema glass, you're only talking another maybe $500 to this price. So yeah. That's not a, a, unreasonable. And and to have that all on hand, um, I think that really opens it up because I like to see all the inspiration coming from filmmakers who just come up with an idea uh, while they're waiting for their plane or something like that. And then the next day they're out shooting it. And that's only possible if you own your own equipment. And there's obviously a price hump with filmmaking before of just being able to pick up equipment and go do it. And Rokinon says, hey, you can own this. Have it at home. Pick it up when you want to. Uh, there's, no, there's no reason to even rent any of these lenses. Like they're so cheap in price. It's one of those that this is where you could start building your collection. Instead of getting a T2i or I guess now a T3i, uh, everyone says every year T3i. 
instead of getting the standard lens, get the body and then go ahead and get the 24, 1.4. Yeah. You know, there's tons you can do with a 24 or a 35, whichever you feel like you'll use more. Um, and you're already way ahead of um, most people in terms of glass. And a lot of this glass you can take with you into bigger cameras. I'm not sure if I'd shoot Rokinon on um, a red or something like that. But, it, you know, especially for the smaller cameras like a GH3, GH4 or something like that, these little lenses are great and the price is perfect. Yeah, and Rokinon does a really good job, or Samyung, whichever brand name label you want to go yeah. with. Um, they do a really good job of adapting these to almost every camera body you can think of. They have these for the Sony E-mount, the A-mount, the Canon series, both the uh, crop sensor as well as the regular. They have these for Nikon. I mean, there isn't really a camera body that Samyung hasn't put an adapter on it to make it work, so... Yeah, but I think the real magic, if you're using a mirrorless real quick, the way that I use it, is all my Rokinon primes, uh, and I do have a few Cines and 85 and stuff like that. Uh, all my primes, I buy them as uh, the Nikon G mount, and then I get a Metabones uh, EOS mount, so that if somebody hands me a piece of L glass, I can attach it to my Black Magic or my GH3, what have you, and control all the electronics. But then at the same time on that, I can go ahead and put a Nikon adapter on top of the Metabones Canon and then go ahead and use all this Nikon glass. And if I'm shooting with a C300 or something, I can throw a Nikon adapter on that and use all this Rokinon glass. So I find like that's the most flexible because if you go with the Micro Four Thirds mount, all they do is add the flange distance for you. And even though the price is the same, it limits your options if you want to use a speed booster or something else like that. That's not a bad idea. And also, Nikon has a bunch of the old Nikkor lenses that are in the uh, $400 to $500 range that are 50 and 55 F1.2s. So and if you some do of want to push it a little glass. bit further. Their 50 millimeter Nikon is beautiful. I love it. Yeah, the other adaptable lens that's very affordable right now on eBay is FD lenses, especially if you're shooting on something that's crop sensor or has a really small flange distance that's easily adapted to. The FD lenses, they're not as sought after because they don't work on most full-frame cameras simply because of the flange. And yeah. they're, they were in Canon's like kind of awkward kid <laughs> phase where some of them are good, some of them are bad, and they're kind of all over the place. The yeah. 50s and some of their um, 85 1.2s and 24mm uh, uh, F1.4s, those are pretty affordable and they're good lenses and they're easy to adapt. So... The, the longer lenses always look better. Yeah. yeah. If you're, if you're chop, talking about cheaper glass and stuff like that, the longer lens has usually got good speed and is usually a bit more clear. And that, that is. The, uh, I've got, I think, one or two Canon FDs as well because they are so cheap and the adapter costs you 10 15 bucks, whatever. And, you know, especially if you're starting out, it's a super cheap prime uh, to get started with because you're right. They're not in demand. Everyone wants the Nikon. Uh, the old Nikon G series and stuff like that because the, all the glass is great. I remember even uh, Canon made a crappy uh, speed booster when they went from uh, yeah. FD to EOS to try to like be like, no, you haven't wasted your money we, <laughs> when we made this new standard. Yeah, it wasn't so, even a speed booster. It was like a, a expander. Because... Yeah, an expander or something because the flange distance was different. I was trying to cover the sensor and everything. It, it was a mess. Yeah, <laughs> and if you're trying to use some of those FD lenses with your full-frame sensors, I don't really recommend it because of that glass adapter. There are a few of the lenses that, um, and the company's name is escaping me right now, but they sell these brass rings, and you unscrew the flange on the lens itself and put this brass ring on there, and that actually 
uh, brings the lens itself in closer to the sensor so that it can cover full frame for the most part. And those do work for a few lenses, but you do have to tear your lens apart. Um, otherwise, if you're using one of those glass in-between adapters, those generally make the lenses worse than they were to begin with, and they do some weird stuff with the f-stop so that you're not getting nearly as much light into the lens. Yeah, but still another brave maneuver. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to start disassembling your eBay lenses. Well, I I've kind of found myself opening up more things than I probably <laughs> should in my lifetime, so that's not completely beyond reproach. But uh, mm-hmm. it's interesting that those things are coming out, so that's something to to definitely think about. The other cool thing about those old lenses, and I know there's a company out there, I believe they go by Dog Shit Lenses, and oh yes, their yes. whole thing is actually mm-hmm. mucking up and kind of doing some weird stuff to all sorts of parts of the of the glass to get an interesting sort of weird, unique look for each of their lenses. Well, mm-hmm. if you go out and buy some of these old FD lenses, uh, my 55 F1 II upstairs is, I believe that's like 65 or 70 vintage. And that one, it has a really unique look to it. When you put it on, the color is a little bit different than any other lens I have in my collection. Uh, it does some weird flaring things that you wouldn't normally expect. And it's soft in random places, but sharp in other places. <laughs> And at first I was kind of annoyed with it, but after I've used it on a regular basis, I've started to kind of enjoy that strange look. And when I'm going for something that's a little bit, I don't know, different or hyper-realistic or a little Mm -hmm. bit strange, I grab that one right away and start messing around with it, you know, pointing some lights towards the the wrong part of it or, or what have you so that I can get kind of some weird fades or some weird lens flares or whatever to get a cool and that's, shot. And that's exactly what uh, this company is trying to do is encourage creativity in a different direction instead of uh, always being clean, getting some effects and some ideas inside of the camera and actually bending light around. I love, too, that their main lenses of choice are like uh, Soviet-era lenses yeah. from Russia and stuff like that. Really bizarre stuff that you really don't see around our parts. Now, moving on down the news line here, I've got... The Metacon 50mm f0.95, this was announced earlier in 2014, and it started pre-ordering at $1,000. You couldn't really find it anywhere except for on this pre-order list. Then it showed up on eBay, and now finally it's starting to hit B&H and Amazon, and they've actually dropped the price down to $899. There's still a two- to four-week wait on this, but Mm -hmm. is f0.95 on a full frame the Boca Dream for A7S owners? (laughs) I guess so, but you got to ask what your subject is. Um, I, I will say at first I thought, no, this is too fast. Anything you focus on, you won't get the entire subject in focus. What's the point? But I started looking at more and more test shots, and it has this brilliant look to it that you haven't really seen before. And that is uh, it almost looks like you shoot something with a 80 millimeter but it has the depth of field control while someone's like six or eight feet away from the lens. Uh, the, it feels like the depth of field is almost like you're shooting them with a 24 or something like that, or they're super close to the lens, where you can take a person dancing in a group of people and everything is blown out behind them and in front of them, um, which is an interesting technique I saw with a, one photographer. He uses an 85, and he'll instead of just shooting the subject, he'll shoot also all around the subject at the same focus, at the same focal length, and then stitch it together in post. So you have this very interesting picture where uh, everything is out of focus, and it looks very wide, like you shot it on a very wide lens, but the depth of field is so narrow. It's this very uh, strange, interesting new look, and this 
lens here just seems to do it all inside of the lens. It seems to just grab whatever subjects out there and completely isolate them in terms of the depth of field, no matter how far they are from the lens. And I think that that's a really interesting look. And right away, you're going to kind of know that this was shot on a full frame with, uh, you know, a lens that's pulling in something around an F1. So it's a very fascinating look and it's very interesting. And then at the same time, you have a great 50 because once you stop it down, uh, then you're in you a know, good spot. Yeah, then you're then you're in a good spot. And if you want to go for some kind of crazy look like that or uh, for photography, I think that the look is really great and really interesting. For video, I could only see it as maybe kind of a special effect because it does look so abstract and so odd from how we're used to seeing what video looks like. Uh, but it just seems like a great lens with this interesting look that no one's really had before except with post-processing and special effects and things like that. Well, and 899 puts it in the range of like Sigma's 50-1.4 art series lenses, and it's not even that absorbent of a price over Rokinon's 50 millimeter offering, which is, I think about 500 bucks. So you're only spending a few hundred dollars more and you're getting F 0.95. If you only use it for a few unique photography options occasionally, mm-hmm. it's still really sexy. It's still, it's still a good deal. And the lens is sharp too. I was surprised at the samples of how sharp this thing looked at a uh, fully open. Because I've been I've been using uh, I mean I was on the black um, the black magic and the GH series I've been using some of those SLR uh, prime yeah uh, SLR magic prime lenses and those guys they they are a little soft if you take it all like they're twenty five at t zero point nine you take it all the way open it is a little soft you take it down to one point two one point four and it starts looking nice and crisp and this guy just seems so crisp. And maybe it has to do with that 50 millimeter focal length or what have you, but it just looks so great even when you're wide open. And I doubt I would use it all the time wide open, uh, but it's great to know that you have that there. And it seems ridiculous too when you consider the low light capabilities <laughs> of the A7S, the ability for this thing to pull light out of anything. Oh, I can man. see some really interesting shots going on where you could take a picture of the night sky and all the stars at maybe like one sixtieth of a second or something like that because uh, the performance of the camera and the lens are so good. This could be the ultimate spy camera. You know, you throw this on your A7S and you have 0.95. You can't even see the subject you're shooting. You have to look into the camera to see it. And then, you know, you snap off that picture of the husband cheating on his wife or something like that, you know. I mean, maybe well, you uh, could you could do some really interesting filmmaking with that. You want to talk about like some real guerrilla stuff where you're out on the street or you're in a forest oh, yeah. or something like that. Uh, I imagine a lot of great guerrilla opportunities with this pairing of uh, lens and camera. You just grab two cell phones and turn on the the screen light and hang it over in the sides, and that's enough lighting to take care of the entire scene. This is this is crazy. I- <laughs> I, I've been hovering over the buy button on this uh, Miticon for a little while now, and I haven't pulled the trigger yet, but I might after I get my tax refund. I don't need this <laughs> at all. I you know, I own a number of 50s already, and I have the uh, uh, Voigtlander 25mm f0.95 uh, for my GH4, so this isn't like something I have to have tomorrow, but I was the same way. I was expecting it to look a lot more soft, and then when I went through the... Uh, uh, example photos on uh, Steve Huff's blog, I started just falling in love with it. I'm like, man, look at that. Oh, wow. Look at that. Oh, wow. And now I'm kind of like, I kind of want one of these, even though I have no need for it at all. Uh, the other thing to kind of compare this to, though, is the legendary Canon F10 
which was made back in the 90s and is no longer in production. That F10 lens for a full frame body was about 3000 new and now because it's such a classic and it's no longer in production it sells for mm-hmm. upwards of $5000. So I know that was autofocus, but the reason they discontinued it is actually because there's so much glass in there that the autofocus motors were almost useless inside of mm-hmm. that particular lens. 899 versus 5000. I mean, yeah. honestly, you can go through it takes a little getting used to if you've never done manual focus on uh, photography, especially at these apertures, but uh, it's still really cool. If you put it into burst mode and just move it around a lot, I'm sure you're going to get something good. <laughs> yeah, well, and with uh, with the usability of that ISO range for the Samsung, or the, I'm sorry, the Sony A7S, uh, it, it, you can do things like that. You could set up burst mode and fly through the focal range and see what you end up getting and what kind of nice pictures you can get because you jack the ISO up, and then you can jack the shutter speed up to match it, and you can be firing off. How fast does the A7S go? I think it's uh, 10 frames per second. And that's that's basically sports camera range. So yep. It might be actually be 11. I'd, I'd have to go look up the specs, but I know it's... Maybe 10 and a half. It's very significant. <laughs> it's, uh, mm-hmm. It sounds like a... It, well, it sounds just as good as the GH4 when you hold the trigger down. It's just like... <laughs> that chainsaw sound. All right, moving on to the next thing on the news list here. I've got Nikon's release of the D5500. The D5500 is a DX format crop sensor DSLR, and it's a replacement for the D5300. This is sitting in the uh, $900 price range. It's kind of there to compete with the Canon 70D body, and it looks like it has mostly the same features as the other cameras in that range. Is Nikon kind of falling into that same category as Canon with very very incremental upgrades uh i think so i mean since we saw uh was it the 3200 where they bumped up to a 24 megapixel sensor yeah uh that was the last time i seen nikon come out with anything that actually uh garnered attention in my opinion um these incremental updates maybe they know something and canon knows something that we don't that consumers will are all about these that pumping out these cameras every year with little changes and little improvements is the acceptable norm and it makes money. Because uh, I know for sure, you know, several years ago, it wouldn't be cost effective to release basically the same camera with one or two feature upgrades every year. Um, but maybe production's gotten cheaper. And like I said, maybe they know something I don't. Because uh, this camera doesn't seem interesting to me, uh, especially for the price. I mean, the specs are all good. It's not like there's anything bad with it. But also I can go on eBay and buy, you know, the older brother to it for uh, significantly less and be, you know, just happy on that camera. This does sport uh, Nikon's very first touchscreen on a DSLR, which I think is really the the big star for this thing is Nikon's never really offered a touchscreen in any of their DSLRs before. So I suppose if you're really interested in getting into the whole touchscreen aspect of using your DSLR, that seems more prosumer. To me, maybe, but uh, I guess that's a thing. And I'm looking at the specs here, and it looks like other than the uh, maximum shutter speed, the D5500 only sports a 1 4,000th, while the D7100 sports a 1 8,000th, which is, that's a big difference. Um, Otherwise, but that's mostly focused on photography. So for that, that's a change. But otherwise, it looks like these are kind of one for one. I mean... It's it's nice that it's small, but there's no buttons on it either. 
it seems like their their whole design has been to fully embrace the touchscreen and I don't know around being around here in Chicago in the blizzard a lot of the times I'm wearing gloves and I've got stuff on my hands and uh, touch screens are a little impractical for me. It's it's one frustration with the GH3. It's like I like having it, but I don't want to have to use it. And at least with the Panasonic series, they give you enough programmable buttons that you don't need to use the touchscreen if you don't want to. There's a few features you have to use the touchscreen for. But for a lot of your stuff and dedicated ISO buttons and white balance buttons and everything else, they built it so you don't have to use the touchscreen. And this camera looks like a total of maybe six buttons on it. And I'm sure like maybe two of them are programmable. But for me, I go, okay, so now it's on a touchscreen. That, that doesn't, I don't think that helps us pros. But for other people, the consumers of flip out screen with the touchscreen, probably touch to focus and things like that. That's fun. And I know a lot of uh, amateur photographers who would enjoy features like that. But like I said, no significant changes in this camera that would make me look at it twice. Now on a side note, they do sell, have you seen those gloves? That have the yes, uh, the yeah. tip built in. It's um, a conductive pad on each of the gloves, and oh, yeah. you can get those. They're not. They don't make them in any glove format that's extremely durable. But they do have no. some for people that are skiers and things like that, where they want. And them. they they do they do have uh they they have threading too. You can do it yourself to your oh, own really? gloves. Oh really? Yeah, you can you can buy conductive threading and then just stitch a pad on the fingers that you want to be conductive. And I know a few photographers who've done that. There's also uh, the camera store recently put out a video where they reviewed the gloves that they use, which they say are super warm and super nice. They're a combination of mittens, and you pull off the mittens to get your uh, uh, small f- uh, fingered gloves so you can actually manipulate things and then put the mins back on to keep your hands warm uh, while you're shooting. So, uh, And I believe those uh, mins as well also had the conductive piece in it. But I've, I've known of lots of people who just take some really nice winter gloves they have and just stitch it into it. And you lose a little bit of waterproofing when you do that. But uh, for the sake of being able to use your phone or your camera in the field, it's a no brainer. That's a pretty good idea. I hadn't seen the conductive threads. I'll have to look into that. We're not quite as bad as Chicago out here, but we get <laughs> yeah. minus 20 and minus 24 throughout the winter. So, mm-hmm. And our big problem here is wind, uh, wind, we get 60 and 70 mile an hour wind gusts and that can be so dang cold oh, to yeah. any exposed skin. You don't even want to get your finger out to operate <laughs> a button. So that's a scary factor. All right, moving on down the line here, Petapixel reports that the GoPro has, uh, GoPro has announced a firmware update for their Hero 4 lineup. Uh, the Hero 4 Silver owners will be receiving a time-lapse feature as well as the ability to flip your screen upside down when you are using the camera that means you can rotate your video so that you don't have to do that in post uh the 4k or the excuse me the uh, hero 4 black owners are going to get extra speed uh in the 70 or 7200 and the oh i'm screwing this up horribly today wow <laughs> uh 720p is getting a mm-hmm. frame rate boost and 2.7k is getting a frame rate boost uh both of these will be going up to i believe the 2.7k is getting a 60 frames per second and the 720p is getting a 240 frames per second boost. So mm. now we have the upgrades for the Hero 4 and the Hero 4 Black, but the 3 and the 3 Plus get no upgrades at all. Is GoPro kind of like kicking everybody else in the nuts that own their previous generation of cameras? I think that this is just uh, a hardware limitations. Uh, after the last one or two firmware upgrades from my 3 and my 3 Plus Black, um, huge stabilities improvements and ability to accept a wider uh, range of memory cards without crashing, even if it has to do lower bit rate. Um, after that, I feel like we hit the limitation 
on what the Hero 3 can do. And even though the 4 is adding new frame rates, I have a feeling that these frame rates are not going to look that great. And what I mean by that is, like with the 3, the Hero 3 Black, uh, you know, I've read so many reviews on the thing before I bought it and so many spec sheets and everything else. But then when you actually came to looking at it, I think it had a 480 mode for 960p, yeah, 480 frames. And when you used 960p at 30, it was super crystal clear and sharp and brilliant. And you used it at 48, and it just turned to mush. Um, and you could tell it just uh, the sensor wasn't, I guess, built to be read that way or something with the way that they did their processing and their I.O. rate. But 720 at 60 looked great. 1080p at 30 looked great. 1080p at 60 looked great. Um, but 9060 at what you think wouldn't have a problem, you know, uh, at 48 frames looked like garbage. And there's a lot of times where these upper frame rates, uh, the bit rate for some reason has to drop so far down, it just turns to mush. And so I'm sure 720 at 240 is going to be really cool for a few effects, but just like the VGA at 240 was kind of soft and not very usable, I don't see this one being terribly usable for cinematic purposes. For fun, for just doing your own shit, doing super slow-mo and stuff like that, maybe even add some Twixter to it, have some fun. Sure, but in terms of professional filmmaking and working uh, in the field and in the industry, I would be surprised if these new frame rates actually produced like really great video. Otherwise, I feel like they would have been included in the first place. I think the sweet spot, though, on this is actually the 2.7K at 60 frames a second. If you're doing image stabilization in oh, yeah. post, having a little bit higher frame rate, not so high as to uh, go into the area that you're talking about where it really gets poor, <laughs> the qual image quality gets poor, but mm -hmm. 60 frames a second at 2.7K, that gives you enough room to work with that if you're doing motion stabilization, you don't get any of the dreaded black edges. And having that higher yeah. frame rate means you don't have to deal with as much motion blur as you would get at 30 or 24. And that makes it easier because you can add that in post afterwards. Uh, that's the feature I'm kind of excited about. The 720p, I'm kind of... 60 at 2.7. At yeah. yeah, exactly. The 720p uh, upgrade, uh, you know, maybe, probably It'd not. It'd be fun. It'd be fun for this or that. You know, do some pretend like you own a high-speed camera like a Phantom Flex. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just well and i'm with you, you know, the, trying to do your own Mythbusters. the gh4 uh, it's 96 frames per second isn't as impressive as i thought it would be it's a bit yeah it's a bit mushy i mean it's cool that you could do that and it's nice that you have that option but it's not you something shoot you constantly in it exactly and i'm guessing you're right on this the uh, bandwidth that's allowed for these smaller cameras like this is kind of the limited uh, limiting factor you're compression rate on these was changed in i believe the three plus because mm. it was having trouble writing to some of the slower memory cards and that's actually yeah. where that upgrade came from a lot of people stayed with the older version because there was more room for data to go to the card and therefore they got a little mm -hmm. bit more resolution out of it and that's fine as long as you have one of the ultra extreme pro whatever <laughs> sand disk drives but if you go lower than that or you mistakenly buy the one that only says Extreme Pro and doesn't have Ultra on it or right, something right. like that, you could end up Seems in the so slower nice. writing speeds. Yeah, so I, I'd like to see how the 2.7 at 60 comes out. I've got a feeling, though, that since this is a, a secondary feature, it wasn't a launch feature, um, I worry about how sharp it may be. Uh, but only time will tell once we get the firmware in our hands. Yeah, the uh, firmware should be hitting at the end of January, first part of February from 
the report. So look forward to that pretty shortly. Moving on to other small devices, according to DP Review, Panasonic Lumix CM1 phone may be coming to the United States this summer. The CM1 offers a 1-inch 20-megapixel sensor with an f2.8 lens. And if you look at the pictures of this guy, it is basically just a lens strapped to the back of a <laughs> cell phone. Uh, the price is expected to be about $1,000 unlocked, and the contract pricing will be much lower for AT&T and T-Mobile. The specs on this guy include a 2.3 gigahertz quad-core Snapdragon CPU, 2 gigs of RAM, 16 gigs of storage space with the option to upgrade to a 128 gig micro SD card, and a 4.7 inch 1080p screen. So the cell phone portion, of this isn't very exciting. What do you think about the camera portion? Um, I think without the cell phone portion, uh, that I mean, that's kind of the charm of it, right? Is that it's a cell phone and it's a point and shoot both combined together. Uh, from the test shots I've seen, it looks like it'll be brilliant, and it looks like uh, this could potentially. See, the problem is, is that the phone isn't high spec enough. I feel like there's an issue where. Uh, a lot of people who'd be really interested in having a point and shoot in their pocket that looks this good because I does I do think it looks fantastic. The resolution is great. Yeah. Um, and a 20 megapixel sensor. From the photos I see so far, it looks like it's coming out sharp, and it looks like it's not some kind of upscaled mess or something like that. But uh, the price is high, and then this isn't a top of the line phone. And I feel like for a lot of production people, and maybe I'm alone in this, but a lot of production people, I feel like I need um, somewhat of a flagship phone, whether it's the best of the iPhones or it's like the best of the Samsungs or something like that every couple of years. Not like every year, but every couple of years because uh, you know, being able to take good video with your phone can be important if you're doing behind the scenes or something like that. It's handy to have. Uh, being able to have a phone that's got great battery life that can keep up with you all day, a phone that's you can load up web pages, you can preview footage on it, you can l- upload to YouTube and all this other crap. Uh, all that kind of stuff is really important to have a fast phone for all that. And here, it seems like we don't have a flagship phone. We have a flagship phone from maybe four years ago. Um, and while the screen looks great on it and it's a 1080p screen and it's probably that way for battery life and everything else – I wonder how well the camera part's going to work because this – I get the feeling this is going to require a bit of power to, to pump this 20-megapixel sensor and autofocus it and do all that kind of stuff. It's going to require power, and I'm not sure that this quad-core Snapdragon from three years ago or whatever is going to have the power to actually run this camera as fast as your point-and-shoot. I feel like if I own this, I'd be frustrated every time I pull it out being like, it's taking too long to turn on. It's taking too long to take the picture. It's taking too long to focus. Um, as opposed to a point and shoot, which, you know, these days they start up in about half a second and they take a picture after two seconds. Uh, so the speed actually might depend on whether or not this gets the latest update to Android, because if you go back a few generations, that was where you really got that horrible lag that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. As far as cell phones, the operating system wasn't optimized. Yeah, exactly. And that, um, windows phones have even started to do that. There was a big announcement at CES that the new Windows phones have optimized a half-second booting time for the camera and a, an instant mm-hmm. shutter, quote-unquote, for quote unquote. yeah, for faster <laughs> pictures. And the, the response on those is a lot better than it was. With the flagship phones, though, I am kind of one of those people that once I got to the HTC One, I mm-hmm. really haven't found myself needing more power in my cell phone, personally. It, that's enough a go juice to get everything done, load up pages fast, be able to right. log into everything. And from well, there you, forward, 
I kind of buy last year's or the year before's phone because I'm off contract. So right, saving money. Yeah, well, saving money, and I have um, the coveted unlimited data, you know. (laughs) So I just go on eBay and buy last year or the year before's phone. And after I moved from the original flip out keyboard droid to the droid Mm -hmm. four, and then finally to the HTC one. I haven't really had enough of a need for that much power in my phone. Is there I still a- consider the HTC One to kind of be a, a main, one of the best phones that HTC's ever produced, and it's probably even their current phone today just seems like a slightly updated one. Yeah, I think true. the HTC is still uh, one of those top of the line phones, like your Samsung Four, your Samsung Five. It's it's up there. I'm I'm making I'm making the argument that as a phone, I'm not sure about its performance, and if its performance isn't as good as an HTC One or something like that, what the specs look like it could be. Um, but at the same time, this isn't a phone made by uh, you know Samsung or something like that. It's being partnered with uh, a camera company. Well, you know? the, that is one of the bonuses, though. Actually, is the CM One? It's a one-inch sensor, so. This may very well be sporting the same one-inch sensor that we see in uh, Panasonic's 100 series cameras, which are also capable of 4K as, as well. So, uh, and a 20 megapixel sensor—that's more than enough uh, uh, megapixels to handle 4K internally, if the processor, as you mentioned, can handle it. Mm-hmm. It would be—it would be interesting. I, I would like to get one of these in my hands and feel it out because uh, the the idea of having something like one of those Lumex, uh, Luminex point-and-shoots that, let's face it, are pretty much king. They're, they're pretty much top of, if you want a camera with a lens attached to it, uh, Luminex makes some of the best cameras there is in that department. Uh, because I feel like Canon isn't really interested in that market share, and neither is Nikon. Uh, I just keep hearing so much raving reviews about every time Luminex or Olympus comes out with another mirrorless camera that has a fixed lens to it. So even though I don't buy those kind of cameras, the idea of having one of those in my pocket always with me uh, attached to my phone is a great idea. Once again, I'm, I'm questioning how well the phone's going to perform uh, if you do a lot of work on your phone all the time, remote desktop or whatever else kind of stuff that you do. Uh, I, I can only hope that because of that 1080p screen, it's going to be snappy. Because obviously, if you go up in resolution, you need more power to drive it, and you need more battery to drive it. So maybe they found a magic point with a 1080p screen to keep the battery life good and uh, keep it a snappy phone. Well, and I'm looking at the uh, CPU chart for the Snapdragon right now, and it does look like it has a dedicated section on the CPU itself for camera controls and running the camera separately. So that it probably won't be taxing the CPU and the normal running operations of the phone while it's taking mm-hmm. photos. So that's a good thing. And a lot of those have better coprocessors that take care of uh, encoding and stuff like that. The yeah, other yeah. thing, um, while we're talking about sensors and built-in lenses, don't discount the Sony RX10 and RX100. Those are also True. very <laughs> sexy built-in lens cameras. Yeah, and yes, they are. I've played around with the RX10. I've had it in the studio for a month or two, and I, I enjoyed it a lot. It's not something I would definitely go to, but um, they mm-hmm. are right neck and neck with all of Panasonic's offerings in their Lumix uh, point-and-shoot camera department. I know. I keep forgetting that Sony makes... Uh cameras besides the a7s i know right (laughs) yeah the rx it came out and you know bloggers were really excited about it but i don't think the general public even gave a darn about the the whole lineup 
And so you saw, you saw all these people like, oh yeah, I've got one of these, I've got one of these, but it's just the same group of people, you know, buying and sharing that they like their camera together as opposed yeah. to, you know, spreading out to the rest of the world. In, in real life, I haven't seen very many of the uh, Sony RX10 or RX100s out in, in the public's wild. hand. Yeah, exactly. So that's maybe where it, it's an issue is because it's $1,000 for the RX10, that's right at the price range where a consumer might say, I don't want this point and shoot. I want a DSLR. Want a big or, hulking 7D. Yeah, exactly. Because 12 FPS. $1,000 <laughs> is a pretty steep curve for a point and shoot camera. Whereas photographers look at it and, and filmmakers as, wow, I have all this and I don't have to carry any lenses. This is great. You know, this will be my like <laughs> prosumer point and shoot camera that I can also film with. So I don't yeah. know. That's kind of a weird spot for marketing to the public. But it's a good lens on it for sure. All right. I'm going to skip this uh, lens age stuff because I'm reading it mm-hmm. now and I don't think it's that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Um, if you it's wanted, good. if you guys want to know more about it, uh, swing over to the digitalpicture.com and check it out. They've got a nice article on checking the serial number for your Canon lenses to find out what the age is of your lens. It's pretty good if you're buying something on eBay or what have you. So that's something to know. You can actually determine the age of your lens based on the serial number from any of your Canon series lenses. Uh, moving on to the discussion topics here. Um, let me see. What do I got first? Okay, so there are some extremely cheap. Uh, variable ND filters on Amazon right now. And I have a post up on this and they're like $12. And the reason they're $12 is because, well, first of all, they're cheap. So let's get that out there (laughs) right away. They are cheaper ND filters. They do soften things a little bit. There's sometimes a little bit of color casting. It's not horrible, but it's there. But Mm -hmm. the other thing is that because the lenses are so small on the GH4, they don't require giant 82 and 72 millimeter filters to go onto mm-hmm. those lenses. We're talking 36, 52, 58, 46, these tiny, tiny filters. And that really makes the price for these come down to something that's affordable. Would you kit your GH3 out with a bunch of these cheap ND filters for $12 a pop? I probably would not. Um, I mean, I'm looking at the tests you see, and I see that they are they are good for what they are. Um, maybe I'm just stubborn about performance, but uh, I myself, I think I've got a Tiffin uh, that I bought for maybe 120 or something like that, a 77. And the, these cheaper ones, I get what you're saying, being able to attach them to the lens the entire time, but... I'm always pulling NDs on and off anyways because uh, NDs, variable NDs, whether you want it there or not, are always going to knock at least, what, half a step down or so, Yeah. even if you have them opened up all the way. So, And I know that I'm losing a bit of clarity too because I'm not paying $1,000 for ND per se or that I guess that it's variable so that you're always going to lose something in it. So I'm always pulling it off and on anyways so – Having one on every lens I use, maybe if I did shoot outside all the time, uh, I would. But there's too many situations where I'm taking them off anyway. So it doesn't make sense for me to have more than one, uh, one size fits all. And lately I've been getting into the having a map box and having some cheap uh, ND glass to sort in front of the map box for opportunities where you're not doing guerrilla filmmaking and you can do that kind of thing. Yeah. I think these are great deals though. If, you're, if you don't have an ND this to me looks good enough compared to what I bought years ago. This looks good enough that you shouldn't have an excuse anymore not to have an ND. Especially at $12, man. 
yeah, at $12, whatever lens you own, buy it for that size lens, you know, instead of dealing with adapters and everything else, and then pop it on there, go outside, and do some brilliant shallow depth of field. Uh, there's no reason not to own one of these if you don't already own one, uh, but it's because it is so cheap. But it's one of those that I feel like if you've already got an ND, I don't see the advantage of having one on every lens. You might. I don't. And um, if you already are working on with a matte box and ND glass that way, that's always going to give you a slightly clearer image because it's not two uh, it's not two polarizers working against each other uh, like it is with your variable NDs. But you know, if if I if this was me five years ago, four years ago, yeah, I would have bought you know one of these, a couple of these up for different kinds of glass that I own because now there's no excuse, and the performance of these is really good enough. Before twelve dollar ND filters would be garbage. They yeah. would just absolutely – they'd be so soft. You could tell they were made out of plastic. They wouldn't be worth crap. Um, but this puts it in the range where I'm thinking, hey, I could get one of these tiny ND filters with an adapter and put it on my GoPro. And I have a variable ND for my GoPro, you know? Yeah, exactly. If you're using something like the uh, rib cage and you wanted to adapt it and then throw an ND filter on, I mean, you're already going through uh, a fairly inexpensive <laughs> lens anyway. So there you yeah. go. Um, I have some expensive – uh, and variable ND filters. I have uh, it's Sinray, I believe, makes them or Stingray. Mm-hmm. I, I always get the name wrong, but uh, that's a three hundred dollar ND filter. Yeah. And I've done tests side by side with the twenty or thirty dollar one and this three hundred dollar one. And while you can see the difference, it's enough of it's not enough of a gap that I would say for most filmmakers, it's worth it to spend three hundred dollars, especially if you're on a low budget. Uh, it is a really good filter and don't get me wrong. It does look better than the cheaper one, but it's so expensive that I end up, you know, I buy one and then I have a bunch of reducers that I put on there to get to my other lenses and that's fine. And thankfully most of Canon's uh, L glass is within the 82 to 72 millimeter Mm -hmm. range. So you don't need a ton of different ring adapters, Right. but at the same time I did some tests with this cheap $12 one and I was blown away by how good it was. It's not, it's not going to change your life, but for $12, I was with you. I was expecting pl- plastic. I was expecting them to mm-hmm. look horrible, to really make the image well, soft. And, and coming from the brand newer as well. Yeah, it's I know. It's not like they're known for quality products. Yeah, they make like cheap battery chargers, generic batteries, mm-hmm. and basically like reissue any other thing that's available on the market <laughs> as their own with a branded right. newer on it. Uh, these, they're decent, especially if you're starting out or if you don't have a, a lot of money. Any kind of ND filter is going to help your production value, especially if you're trying to shoot wide open in direct sunlight. So that's definitely something to consider for $12. If you do want to get a little bit better performance, instead of getting a variable ND, you can always get some very affordable fixed NDs, and each one of those is its own value. You stack them on top of each other, or you you move up the line as you go. And those, no matter what, provide a little bit better clarity because you're only dealing with the one piece of glass as opposed to multiple pieces of glass twisting around. So that's another option too for uh, low-budget filmmakers out there. Absolutely. All right, moving on down the line here. Aspen HQ SPK LOVs. I ran into these while I was looking for a suitable upgrade LOV for the $84 monoprice wireless unit I talked about earlier. Uh, It uses a TRRS four-pole adapter and it looks as though for right now up until january 21st uh aspen is selling their new lobs for 39.95 uh 
uh, versus the $64 retail value. And that includes the four-pole to three-pole adapter for their lav mics. What do you think about this? Are you willing to try out cheap lavs or lower price lavs to see if they perform well? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I've bought one of these uh, road adapters in the past uh, for my own work, and I've built them myself. Uh, but for the price these days, the road adapter makes a lot more sense just in the build quality. It's built so well. Uh, at first, I saw that uh, one of the pins was slightly longer than the other pins, and I thought that that was a design defect, and then realized that that's the ground pin, and they yep. do that so that it doesn't pop when you plug and unplug it. Uh, so the the overall structure of it and everything else, I've got both just in case I need to use both. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I have used this before for sometimes computer microphones or other really cheap lav mics to get them into a proper preamp. I mean, you'd be surprised when you properly – when you have a proper preamp, some of the crappiest mic in the world actually start to come off as passable. I've done some blind listening tests with like an HP computer microphone from, you know, 95 and something you think is totally unusable garbage and sounds worse than your cell phone actually starts producing okay noise when you have a proper amp driving it. Um, so I think that this is an essential piece of kit for anybody who does audio to have inside their bag, whether you're uh, using a mini rig or you're using a prosumer camera like a C300, something with XLR inputs or the Sony series. Um, it's so small, it takes up no space, it costs nothing. And especially, too, if you want to try out some microphones, um, this is a great way to go about it. Um, I now, think you're too, talking about the uh, three-pin XLR adapter, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the three-pin XLR adapter, they're cheap now. They were 20 bucks or 30 bucks back in the day. Now the off-the-shelf ones are only $8, $9 is what I'm seeing here on Amazon right now. And the build quality is great. You can find those XLR to three-pin adapters under the term Rode XL or VXLR on Amazon. So if you're looking for one of those uh, XLR to three-pin adapters. Now back to that Aspen I'm lav sorry. mic. Oh, no problem. I just was... Totally read the wrong note here. Oh, that's oh okay. Gosh. I was following along and then I wasn't following along. <laughs> then you realize... I'm, I'm like, where off. are we at? Oh, no. I totally skipped to another page. Uh, oh no problem, gosh. man. Um, the Aspen <laughs> HQ SPK yes, lavs, the lavs. Uh, they're $39 right now. They're on sale. They are normally $64. The closest range in price to these are above $100, and we're starting to look into the Rode Lav Mics and some of those other units. Um, uh, sure sells some. Uh, Sennheiser sells a few. This, oh, and Backcountry. I think, the, isn't Backcountry one of the premier brands? They sell those weird square flat so. ones. Um, yeah. So this is $39.95. I went ahead and ordered one of these lobs and it comes I ordered with, one as well. It comes with a different adapter than we were talking about earlier, the XLR adapter. This is yeah. a four pole to a three pole mm -hmm. adapter. And that basically brings you from a regular microphone connection, a lav mic connection to a cell phone or a iPad or whatever adapter. And the reason they're four poles is usually because they bring in two channels for stereo audio to your headphones and then they have one for the microphone returning back to the device itself. So with this mm -hmm. adapter, they're basically just bypassing the headphone portion and going straight into the microphone portion of the unit. I don't know if this is going to work or not with that $84 monoprice wireless unit because I could not find in the specs anywhere where it says the monoprice unit provides power at the plug. So I don't know. And this Aspen, it looks as though it requires at least two volts to operate. 
So that's going to be kind of a gray area. If it does, I'm wondering what kind of audio improvements we're going to get out of this monoprice unit. Yeah, and I've got one of these headed my way as well. I'm interested to test uh, how I could get it wired up because obviously, yeah, the microphones that are built for computers and cell phones, uh, you know, they're built to take a certain amount of voltage and operate a certain way compared to professional audio. And I, I've got a feeling that that's probably exactly how the monoprice mics work. I've got no, no spec sheets to back me up, but I've got a feeling that that's how monoprice made their mics work because monoprice has mostly been involved with computer stuff and has only recently started putting out audio gear and video gear. But the stuff they have put out is uh, fairly decent. Is, it is decent. I mean, there's a few things you can tell. It's not a video company. I bought one of their smaller video lights just to try out. And the whole design of how you get around the uh, the Calvin measurement and everything else, how you get around and use it is a bit cumbersome. And you can tell that it's not a video professional that's designing these buttons and these switches. But the performance <laughs> of the product is great. I mean, it's got some silly stuff. I could do a review on it, but you got to hold down a button to see how much battery life there is in it. And by hold down, I mean hold down for like two seconds what? and then it'll show you battery life. And then to do the whether you want warm or cool – you have to go to the cool LEDs and pick what kind of percentage you want on those. Then go to the warm LEDs and pick what kind of percentage you want on those. So it's That's not just like – an awful way to select stuff. Right. There's no overall brightness. There's no overall uh, cool or daylight balanced. So it, the performance of the product is great. No flicker, great battery life, everything else. But the interface on it is just crummy. But once again, this is their kind of first go at making some video products. So I'm sure they'll learn with time. But so far – it's, it, they produce quality equipment. There's no doubt about that. So I, I'm really interested to see how these monoprice wireless uh, work, and especially with a microphone this cheap. Uh, whether it's filmmaking or interviews or ENG stuff, uh, this could really be a game changer for people who are just breaking into filmmaking. Yeah, I don't want to say the word game changer. I always stay away from that <laughs> one. But I will say that in this price category, the closest competitor is VHF. And VHF, yeah. if you've used that in the past, it's... It's okay if you're in an it's area okay. where, you know, you're protected and there isn't a lot of, of other stray frequencies running around. But as soon as you get to anywhere where there is anything going on, even like ambulance drivers or police frequencies or anything like that, you start to yep. get some weird effects and it can be staticky and everything else. This using uh, 2.4 gigahertz Wi-Fi bands means that you're going to be pretty good in most places where it's not overly saturated with Wi-Fi. So... That's a lot more bandwidth to work with and a lot more signal quality to to get out of something that's well, $84. And and I feel like it's a lot more bandwidth because while the spec sheets I don't think directly reference it from what I read, um, I'm pretty sure they're converting this into a digital waveform. Um, whether that's a bit lossy or if that is lossless, converting it to digital means that the amount of bandwidth it needs to get that signal across is going to be much smaller than if it was just trying to generally use 2.4 gigahertz to send you know, over radio signals like they do with VHF, an analog uh, over that. So it'll be really interesting to see if range is decent. Uh, with it being probably a digital signal being sent between these devices, as well as frequency hopping for in case you are in areas where a few frequencies pop up and uh, start to dominate and stuff like that. These are definitely a, a digital transmission. Uh, the encoders on these, the chips that they're using for their Wi-Fi transmission are off the shelf, mm -hmm. and they come with a back-end um, 
codec that basically is encoding to MP3 on the fly and then sending it over and decoding. So you have ADDA converters on both sides working. I on see. The and do they do they do a do they tell you what kind of spec they're trying to do for bandwidth, or is it like a variable bit rate or anything like that? I had to go hunting down on the internet <laughs> to find anything on these at all. And I was not able to find the exact model or chip that they're using because they don't actually specify. But right. the current low price units that are out there give you the standard uh, 192 encoding. So, or 128 encodings for your mm-hmm. um, digital file back to analog on the other side. The DACs aren't going to be crazy amazing. I'm guessing right. the 16-bit range is what you're going to be looking at. But, uh, and this is kind of on the super nerd side of things. The technology they're using in this, if you go look up uh, Wii Audio, and they originally, I believe the company was called Jengus, they created a stereo transmitter that used these exact same chips. And the stereo transmitter was basically sending both channels one direction. What they're doing with this is one channel goes to the receiver and the other channel goes back to the transmitter. And the reason they want to do that is because you can do audio back to the person that's at the, you know, in front of the camera and tell mm-hmm. them like information or give them directions or what have you. And they can have an earpiece in while they're doing it. But the chips are exactly the same as the Jengus uh, wireless Wii units. And those were 16 bit encoding. And those were going to an MP3 Kodak and then coming back up again. The one thing that will probably end up happening because of that uh, onboard encoding that's going on is that there will be a minor amount of latency uh, working with mm-hmm. the uh, Jengus units, the latency was roughly three milliseconds. So mm-hmm. not enough to to be horrible and unusable, but it was just enough to where if you were monitoring at the camera and you were monitoring with one of these wireless units... It would seem off. Yeah, it would seem like there was a little bit of a strange echo. Uh, as far as frame rates go, uh, three milliseconds is low enough that it's not going to push your audio to the next frame. So mm-hmm. for video, it's no big deal unless you're going above 30 frames a second. Then you might notice that there's a little bit of slippage, in which case, you know, in Premiere, roll your audio back a, you know, a three yeah. milliseconds or two milliseconds. That's not too big a deal. Um, but still, for $84, I think most people won't even notice the latency in a device well, like and this. I, I think about other applications, the fact that uh, the main transmitter has onboard monitoring. Uh, makes me think that uh, this could also be used just for if you're using a system where you're doing sound sync for your cameras. Yeah. Uh, You could set up one of these on top of a camera with, you know, a shotgun mic or something like that for scratch audio. And then it can take that audio while it sends the audio to the other camera as well so that you know that you'll be able to sync all those effortlessly in post. Yeah, there could be an option like that. In a live situation. So I see see a lot of potential with the little features they add here and there too. I know that there was a 2.4 gigahertz from newer or something like that. Yeah. Um, And I never actually saw any reviews on that. And I wasn't sure if that was ever going to turn out to be good. Uh, But I've got more faith in the mono price because uh, they're actually kind of reporting – what kind of chipsets they're using and stuff like that. So. I think uh, with that newer unit, it was using the same backend uh, chips as it, all the other uh, 2.4 gigahertz units are using. It was mm-hmm. just that they crammed in the lowest price junk that they could find into their <laughs> unit. Uh, one thing Monoprice is really good about is they don't make the best and they don't make the worst. What they do is they scale down any product design to the rudimentary bits and try to cut corners on price as much as possible without making something that's complete junk. So a lot of times 
And I, there's actually a really great interview with the owners of Monoprice on NPR, if you ever want to check that out. But um, they, and I think it's Planet Money that does it. And they talk to the guy and he's like, look, you know, if I can make this metal case um, one millimeter smaller, I can save, you know, $3 in the production costs. And if I can, you know, use a different value of capacitor on this circuit right here, I can mm-hmm. save us this many dollars. And all I do all day is dig through these ideas and then try to scale it down to the least <laughs> expensive item possible without making it junk. And if you get some yeah. of like Monoprice's uh, speakers, I own a couple of their shelf speakers and they're really, really similar in design to uh, other speaker brands that I'm not going to uh, name, <laughs> but they were able to use a little bit thinner wall. They were able to to cut a few corners that weren't substantial enough to make the audio quality go down. And uh, one of the blogs I read for audio equipment is uh, the Auto Audiophiliac. If you check out his review of some of the Monoprice speakers, he basically tells you the same thing I'm telling you. They're really decent, good-sounding speakers for the price range that they're sitting in, and a lot of other stuff on model price is the same way. They Are just... you kidding me? They're great for the price. Yeah, maybe that's, I, that's where the I'm not giving is. enough credit. They're great for the price. No, they aren't the best speakers out there, and they aren't the greatest speakers, but for the price, they're great. I've got a few pairs of their headphones just for throwing around and giving to other people and lending to people and stuff like that, and the quality on that is great for the price. Uh, they're really, they really under, they undersell overperform kind of products. And even though it may not be a Shure and Sennheiser or M audio kind of equipment, uh, it's still not ever a wasted dollar on their equipment. Yeah, that's true. Monoprice does some good stuff. Uh, moving on to the next discussion topic here. I have the 50 millimeter and 85 millimeter from Canon. And uh, in the show notes here, I've got a picture of the 50 millimeter sitting on top of the speed boost next to the Panasonic 25 millimeter F1.4. Now, if you look at these side by side, the 50 millimeter F1.4 is almost in the size and range as the rest of the micro four third lenses. Have you tried using the 50 or the 85 millimeter F1.8 with your uh, Panasonic cameras? I have. Uh you're talking about like the Canon uh, Ultrasonic 50 yep. millimeter, 50 millimeter f1.4, the one that you got pictured here. Yes, yep. I have actually tried that exact one. Um, I haven't tried it with a speed booster, so I can't tell you about that. But uh, of course, the glass, uh, especially too, because I guess where you could say that the Ultrasonics aren't considered L series is around the edges. Yeah, and that becomes a moot point when uh, you're dealing with a crop of you know two X or higher. Exactly. Uh, but. It comes through brilliantly, and it's worked great for me. And uh, I can only imagine with the speed booster, it gets even brighter and clearer. And I think that in terms of flexibility here, because, I mean, you're comparing the 50 with the speed booster to the 25 uh, straight from Panasonic or uh, who makes the 25? Lumix? Uh, Panasonic or, makes it, yes. Yeah, it's Panasonic a Panasonic Lumix. Lumix. Yes, yes. And so that – while those lenses are nice because the autofocus and all that kind of stuff uh, is probably, you could argue, a little bit faster than going through the meta bones, I still feel like you're going to get a lot more use out of a piece of Canon glass like that because it's going to fit on more stuff and it's going to give you more possibilities in the future. I'm one of those that likes to get lenses like I talked about before that will work on multiple cameras and multiple systems as well as boosters that work in multiple ways. Uh, but... You can't deny that the 25 from uh, Lumix Panasonic does look great, and it is a really fast lens, and it is nice that the camera knows exactly what the glass is doing. 
in terms of, you know, if you're in photography and you want to see exactly what the focus range is or whatever, the ISO, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, but if, if my money was on it, I'd spend the extra money and go for, you know, the 50 with the speed booster, because I think that I'm going to get a lot more use out of something like that, especially to, if you're trying to shoot lower light stuff, uh, the, the 2X, a, a crop sensor that small means that you can really drop the f-stop down to one, 1.2, 1.0. And, uh, you're still going to get most of your subject in focus. You know, it's, it's very usable at that range. If you take a 5D down to 1.2, there's not a lot of usable shots because of how narrow the depth of field is. So even though the sensor is smaller and people complain that it can't handle the low light, because it is smaller, kind of like an ENG lens, you can take the uh, F-stop or the T-stop down further and still get everything you want in focus. Yeah, the Canon 50mm F1.4, I've been playing around with the speed booster, and maybe I haven't experimented enough. I just started messing around with it uh, last week, but I haven't been able to get autofocus to work with the speed booster yet. So I don't know, and I haven't done with enough the research. GH4? Yeah, with the GH4. So I haven't done enough research with the speed booster to know for sure if that mm-hmm. is just some setting I have to change or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, right now I'm not getting autofocus with the 50 millimeter 1.4 or the 85 millimeter uh, 1.8. I'm getting full aperture control and everything else from the body, but I'm not getting any autofocus in in photo mode. So you know, I feel I feel like an overall theme here, uh, and maybe at least for me, but I feel like maybe even for you too, is that if you're doing photography, having lenses that are built for the camera you're using uh, makes a lot of sense. Yes, uh, having autofocus that hits the mark every time and stuff like that. And the camera that knows how to expose through that kind of glass makes a lot of sense. But I feel like for us video people, we're doing everything manually anyways, and we're never putting the focus into auto rarely ever. So features like that just seem to be a moot point. Uh, cause there's very few production shots I've been on where I've ever used autofocus. I'm actually so. kind of a lazy guy when it comes <laughs> to this. So I'm going to yeah. like admit my flaw right here. Uh, half of the time when I'm, especially if I'm on a Canon camera, I will mm-hmm. half press the shutter button to get things in focus and right. then I will just go. <laughs> and uh, I know that is completely frowned upon by, you know, <laughs> we have all this beautiful manual glass and everything else, but mm-hmm. I'm lazy. I'm like, oh man, I want to make sure this is in focus. You know, I punch in, I half press. Yep. Looks like it's in focus. And then I start rolling. If I need <laughs> to move it around, you know, I move it around after I start rolling and hopefully I do it right. But well, and- I, I nay nay on those people too because I, I something like that makes sense to me and I think that uh, uh, too many people are on their high horse about uh, being elitist on how you should operate a camera when you're filmmaking uh, because especially if you're by yourself and you're doing your own blogs or something like that it's whatever gets the job done reliably and consistently and you know back when we were all using prosumer cameras and DVX 100s and PD 150s. Uh, the autofocus of those cameras worked and they worked brilliantly and they almost never had a problem, even though people back then were still saying, hey, you should be doing manual all the time. What are you doing? Um, so there's these features work and I myself have used autofocus on several occasions when other options just weren't there. If I have a wide open aperture and I'm flying it on a, you know, a, a steady cam or something like that. Uh, you know, you might have to do a second take or, you know, you might be a little bit soft on one or two of the shots, but lo and behold, it beats, you know, the alternative, which is not getting that shot. That's exactly right. Going back to your uh, point about native lenses on the camera, one thing I've run into 
almost immediately as the, spe- uh, not the speed booster, but the Metabones adapter for Canon lenses to the A7S. The autofocus on Canon glass on the A7S is garbage. It works, <laughs> but it works so slow that you could have gotten it in focus yep. by manually focusing right out of the gate. It's just, yep. it's awful. So that's exactly right. When I want to shoot stills, I grab my Canon glass and I throw it on my Canon camera and I shoot. Or I grab my native uh, four-thirds lenses and I throw it on the GH4 and I shoot. That's it. I don't want to have to deal with really slow autofocus. And I know there was a time way back in the day when I shot on a (laughs) Pentax K1000 where I had to manually focus everything because autofocus didn't exist. But now that it's there and it's really good... I feel like it's not conducive to shooting to go back to such slow response or almost useless autofocus systems. And and I, I tell you what, uh, real quick, I last weekend was just at a, a a theater play, and they were doing a dress rehearsal, and they wanted some production shots during the dress rehearsal. Yeah. And unfortunately, my GH3, I don't have fancy uh, Lumix glass that does 1.4 or 1.8 or anything like that. Uh, all I had was the kit lens, which is 3.5, which in those kind of high contrast situations and dark environments just wasn't performing at all. And then I had a Rokinon cine lens that was 85 millimeter at 1.5. And I was getting brilliant shots. But after I took my thousand pictures back into post, half of them were out of focus. I just couldn't nail the focus. There was too much moving around and jumping and everything else. And I know that if I had a proper autofocus system, 80% 80% of the photos would have been in focus and I would have had a lot more that I could have delivered to the client. So it's one of those that for photography, it, you can't beat it. Like you could put on speed boosters and do a bunch of fancy stuff, but autofocus is such a big thing uh, for photography in those situations where you're doing sports or fast moving subjects. And it's just kind of unhuman to be able to get that shot unless you're sitting there all day waiting for the shot and you grab one shot, you know, so. Well, I've done, um, I've worked with a a guy that did some stuff for National Geographic and he was one of their last um, in-house photographers for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what's your secret? You know, tell me your camera (laughs) knowledge. I want to know. And he pulls Mm -hmm. out his box from his last shoot of negatives. He said, you know, this is the last uh, uh, job I shot film on. He's like, look at how many rolls of film there are. And I counted and there was several hundred. It just, it was Mm -hmm. immense. And I'm like, well, you only published four pictures or five pictures, you know, from that shoot. He's like, exactly. I'm like, what? He's like, my secret is I shoot a lot. And I'm like, (laughs) well, what do you mean? He's like, I just go through roll after roll. He's like, I have rules for how I shoot and I follow those precisely. But I also shoot a lot because when and this was back in the early days of autofocus and things like that he's like hey listen you know i may have grabbed the wrong iso film for what i'm working on or i may not you know have something to stabilize the camera or i may be on the back of a jeep or i may be running mm-hmm. around in the forest you know something might go wrong so i shoot so many pictures and then when i get back i turn it over to my editor they look through all the pictures and pick out the ones they like and then that's it and it's yep. like wow you know, you know, basically quantity, I mean, quality as well, but quantity was definitely the number one point he was getting at is like, I shoot a lot. Mm-hmm. And then that way, if only 10% is a hit, I have a thousand pictures. That means I have a hundred pictures that are really good. Yep. <laughs> Don't do that though. That's bad. <laughs> Don't you know, do that. No, do it the right way. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, last thing on the list here, and then we'll call it a day. I've got the Logitech C930E webcam. 
Uh, a lot of you have been asking for this podcast to move to a video format, and that is the webcam I picked up for my desktop. I'm kind of curious. I own a ton of camera gear, but this is the first, you know, webcam <laughs> that I've, uh, you know, I've, I feel weird that because I'm a filmmaker and I, I have camera after camera, I don't own anything that shoots me in front of my computer <laughs> sitting there. So I've looked into the specs. I don't know if you have any information on webcams or, you know, anything about this model. I'm kind of at a loss for words on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, for me, for me, the, I have a, a C920. And I think it looks good. Like any camera, it's a tiny sensor camera. If you throw enough light, it's going to look great. Uh, the Logitech series has this right light technology, and you need to turn that off. It does reduce grain. It does provide a bit more color. Uh, but it seems to bring it down to like 15 frames a second. Oh, but okay. if you give the camera enough light, like any other cheap camera, if you give it enough light uh, – and you turn off any kind of special features on it, uh, you can get a really great signal on it. I've used it for several live streams for uh, bands and Q&As and stuff like that because the camera's cheap. It's USB. You can fit it anywhere. And if, if you really need really fancy stuff, it's not like you can't get a capture card for $100. But if you're doing uh, something every week, you don't want to set up and tear down a camera every week uh, or, you know, multiple times a week for some kind of show that you're doing. So something like this, I actually have seen the C920 used on a lot of, uh, satellite XM, uh, radio shows and stuff like that. Really? Just because it's, just cause it's so small, you can really point it on anything, on anywhere. You can kind of start thinking of it like a GoPro. It's tethered, but you can think of it like a GoPro in the fact that this thing's small. I can glue it to the wall or put it anywhere that I'd like to. Um, I do like too that the camera series you're looking at, that's uh, that upper C9 series, is got a quarter thread mount. Yeah, which is nice too. I'm thinking about combining it. Actually, I have one of those tracking pads where you throw mm-hmm. the unit in your pocket and the sand follows you around as you move. It, it pans <laughs> and tilts. So I was yeah. thinking maybe you know because people have asked for video on this and it's kind of just oh, yeah. a talking thing. If I need to go run and grab equipment while we're going. I can set it on that stand and have the stand auto track me across the studio and back again as we're going through different articles and stuff like that. So maybe that's something I'll do. I'm kind of interested. These are a hundred bucks. So that seems, I don't know. That seems pretty reasonable. Oh, oh, Oh. is it steep? I don't know. This is my first webcam. So for a webcam, it is the priciest webcam you can get. I mean, they do have webcams that will also pan and follow. And those are like, sure. I think 300 or 400. Uh, If, if you are looking to start up a production or something like that, you're looking at, hey, I want a webcam for doing a little bit of this or that. My recommendation for a long time has been the C615. It goes for 50 bucks or 45 bucks. Occasionally during Christmas, it'll go down to 30, 25 sometimes. Um, when you grab this camera on sale, it's a great deal for people who maybe they want to do live streams of their stuff. They don't want to spend a lot on equipment. Uh, it, it doesn't have... Uh, 1080 streaming like the C series does. It only yeah. has 720 streaming. They advertise as a 1080, but that's only in recording. Um, but it comes with a quarter threaded mount. It's got a clean image. The microphone, of course, is mediocre, but you know that's usually you should be doing a separate audio system, anyways, because uh, anything mounted on top of a plastic device on top of your monitor is not going to sound very good. So, uh, in this situation, yeah, if you're just starting out. 
for a podcast or a show, I would say the 615. Um, but if you really want it to look as good as a webcam can look, you really can't get any better than the Logitech C930 or 920 or anything up in that upper range. Now, I'm glancing here on uh, Amazon, and it looks as though the uh, C920 uh, can be had used for about 60 to 70 bucks. So that's a that seems like a pretty reasonable price. I just it went is. with the C930 because... I watched like four reviews and they uh, basically they said, oh, this is the best one and this one's not as good. It is. And it when is I was looking at new prices, one. they were only 20 or $30 apart from each other. So I was like, well, I'll just spring for the nicer one. <laughs> I don't know if the video quality is going to be that much more or that much better than the 920, but they both look like pretty decent cameras. Oh, no, for sure. You can't go wrong with either one. The um, I think that... Uh, the C930 does a, a slightly higher bitrate on its H.264 encoding. Okay. All of these webcams we're talking about today, all the Logitech webcams actually do onboard video encoding. That's why they're able to use – they're able to pump 1080p through USB 2.0 because they're actually compressing down to an H.264 stream and then sending that to nice. Skype or whatever application you're using. So that's also nice too is that you don't need to worry about having a hunky computer in order to do your streaming or anything else like that. And you can still do HD video conferencing and what have you. Uh, and from what I've seen, the main difference is the 930, you are going to get a slightly higher bit rate and it's going to make better use of that sensor compared to the 920. I also think too, the 930 just came out last year. Yeah. And, and I was looking and the at 920 has been out for like two or three years now. I was looking at the, uh, the main difference I saw in, in the demonstration videos between the two was actually the color. The 930 mm-hmm. seemed to have a better automatic white balance system than the mm. 920. So people right out of the box were getting a little bit better looking image from the 930 than they were the 920 and the 920 right. they were following your example and going in and turning off some of the settings and you know changing a few things to get it to look right but with the yeah. 930 it was just like bam you know plug out it of the in box out of the box and it's good to go and, and you know what frankly most of the time as much as we like tweaking with stuff half the time we just want crap to work yep and <laughs> i think uh, i don't know with a cast like this i'm not sure that anybody's gonna really care that i'm <laughs> like a little bit out of focus or i'm like you know not super right, sharp yeah. they they yeah. are basically gonna end up watching me flail my arms around like a retard <laughs> for you know however long um okay last thing on the list here is pick of the week man what do you got for your pick of the week uh i just started using uh, a new light panel that is extremely cheap uh i don't know how to pronounce this it's called the nanagoo Gooning? I, I'm sorry. I can't pronounce that no, at all. Okay. But the model number is CN576. And uh, I got interested in this because uh, one of my light panels was lost on a shoot. And it was one of the aperture light panels that are kind of popular. They're like 9-inch by 9-inch light panels. Yeah. And one thing that always frustrated me, those light panels, though, while the features are great with being able to charge the batteries as well as shooting and everything else, is that they had a flicker. They're using... Uh, PWD uh, or whatever for... Yeah, pulse width their, modulation to run the dimming control circuits on their LEDs. Which causes flicker instead of using voltage. It is a more efficient way of doing it. You get more battery life, but uh, you get flicker if you're shooting video. And so I took a look at this guy for the same price as uh, the older version of that, because Aperture now is a newer version that they say. Also, there was a, a magenta cast or a green cast with those LEDs. Yeah. I got a really weird color shift on those LEDs that I didn't like. It wasn't terrible, but it still made me fix it in post all the time. So this CN576 advertises being CRI95, uh, like I'm sure everyone's advertising their lights now these days because average filmmakers have learned what CRI is. But uh, I went ahead and bought this guy because he's less than $200. 
gave him a try. Um, and the light is great. Uh, the white is really good white. And it's a nice diffused uh, panel. I don't know if that's because they put white behind the LEDs. Uh, but I'm not getting multiple shadows. It's uh, nice and diffused. It comes with a tungsten filter as well. It'll take three Sony batteries. I don't know how long that'll take. I haven't done a proper test or a full review of it. And it's a little bigger. This one is actually around the size of a one foot by one foot. But uh, I was impressed with the white that came out of it. And for the price, you don't get a battery meter. But, of course, you do get a dimmer. It doesn't flicker at all. Uh, the light is nice and constant. And it won't charge any of the batteries either, which is unfortunate. And then it, it has a warning about having the power switch on while you plug and unplug external power, which makes me worried. Huh. But for a light this cheap, uh, especially for me, the idea for this light was to set it up in a studio and keep it there for a while. Uh, this seems perfectly a great LED system for the price, as well as the possibility to go mobile with it. One interesting thing I found with the light, too, is that it's got clips on the front as if they're supposed to be barn doors that you attach to the front, huh. but they don't seem to sell any. I, some of their older models seem to come with it. So I don't know if that's a feature that they'll add later where you could buy barn doors for it. But even if they don't, I could see a way that I could wire up some of my own barn doors into those mounts. So um, it, it is bigger than the older one is. Like I said, this one's a proper one foot by one foot. And it has a very silly pole that it sits on, which is supposed to be bendable. I don't know how long that'll last. <laughs> uh, but, you know especially for the price, uh, this guy for me is a total winner and I'll probably pick up a few more to finish building out the studio. Now I've kind of in my studio space, I've avoided using led lights. I know that, uh, they're getting a lot better, but I was burned by a few of the first generation ones. As far as mm -hmm. portable goes though, I have, and I'll just make this the pick of my, or my pick of the week is the torch led bolt. I own a set of three of those. And for traveling and setting up a quick lighting rig, each one of those heads is equivalent to about uh, 200 watts of light output. And mm -hmm. they're, they're expensive, they're pricey, but you don't get any color shifting. You don't have any of the issues that right. you run into with some of the lower price units. And at $300 a piece or two, I think they're down to 249 but that's without the batteries. So I figure you're going to spend at least $300 by the time you buy the battery and the charger to go with this. So $900 yeah. for the set, that is really spendy, but I'm getting <laughs> 600 watts of light output. I have a three light set and I can pack them all down into the space of three lens compartments in my Tamron bags. So mm. that's, that's where they're a winner for me. And <laughs> I, I use those all the time. I have the very first version that Torch came out with and then I upgraded and got one of their newer ones. And that's why I actually have three is because I have all three generations <laughs> in my bag, the first generation, the second generation, and the, the, now the new one, it does have wireless control. And that's, I guess that's a thing. Um, honestly, <laughs> I usually just set them up, match them at the units themselves and then go, and they are really powerful. And it's amazing how much light you can get out of those little guys for the price tag. Again, they're the same way as the ones you were speaking about, the CN 576s. They don't allow you to charge the battery on the back of the unit. You do have to mm -hmm. use an external charger. And I use these really honking uh, Sony <laughs> FP 970 batteries. They're mm -hmm. like three or 4,000 milliwatt hours. So <laughs> they're putting out you know a substantial amount of voltage or excuse me a substantial amount of current to power these things and that's one thing i have run into is the lifespan on battery power is only about 
two hours maximum with one of these really big batteries so they are well and that's because they are bright and that's part of the trade-off too is that they are bright and when you use voltage dimming instead of uh, pwd or whatever it's uh you're gonna lose some efficiency of your battery and that's probably why the light panel i've got has three slots for those sony mp batteries because um the the led lights do chew through batteries but i tell you LED just changes up the game for lighting, and I feel like not enough people realize how much of a difference this makes. Because CFLs are nice, uh, but they still require you know uh, a lot of power. Even if you're using V mounts and stuff like that, they still require a lot of power, and they aren't dimmable because just fluorescent technology isn't dimmable. Exactly. And tungstens are fantastic, and you'll never get better color than out of your tungstens. But they're so tungstens- hot. They're hot, and when you dim them, you know they change color. That's just the physics of it. They're 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 not terrible at it, but when you do dim them, they do get a little warmer, and you got to throw a few more cool sheets on them to get them to be where you want them to be. So LEDs really change things up, and really, I think they're not quite there where I see experts replacing lights with LEDs. But we're getting so close to that point where even these cheap LEDs are finally giving proper whites and uh, performing the way that I think a lot of people will get really excited about having these on set. Yeah, I've. I'm actually working on a project right now, and I don't know if it'll ever get completely finished or not, but I am (laughs) converting one of my old Fresnel lights to an LED system. And Mm -hmm. what you can do, and this is kind of a little bit off topic, but uh, the LEDs, the 200-watt LED units equivalent output are available on um, Amazon and on uh, eBay for about $40 to $50. You attach a CPU cooler to them and a power control head, and now mm-hmm. you have – and these are actually using 100 or 200 watts internally. So their output is substantially more. Um, they get really hot, but you can put them into a, a, your old enclosure, and then you still have your magnification lens in the front of that so that you can use them like you would a, a normal light. And the off-the-shelf versions of these, uh, the LED versions anyway, are in the two dollars to $3,000 range. You could build this kit up from an old Fresnel that you grabbed from – a studio mm-hmm. or whatever for 50 bucks and then put this in another $50 and you have a $100 light that uh, gives you the same option of focusing your light beams and, and getting really yeah. tight light and everything else. So I'm really interested to see how it turns out. It may be one of those projects where I give <laughs> up on it and it never gets completely you know brought to fruition, but it's one of those things to think about. Uh, the other thing is these LED kits out there now, they do sell some really nice ones from all different manufacturers. I'm just looking at the CN5576 uh, that you mentioned, and mm-hmm. it looks like there are 20 or 30 different companies that are selling <laughs> units all that are branded thing. that. Yeah, yeah. And so and they're all over the place in terms of quality build. I'm seeing some with barn doors, some without, some that come with that flexible stand you were talking about, and the price yeah. is all over the place too. So make sure you read the reviews on these and check out all the information you can before you go out and, and buy one. Absolutely. All right, where can folks find you on the internet, Devin? Uh, well, right now, uh, they can get updates at facebook.com slash impulsenet. Uh, we should hopefully be launching a few pitch videos on there in the upcoming days, uh, as well as I think uh, we've got one or two shorts that we haven't released yet that we'll probably be pushing out that way too. So uh, you, can, you can like that or check that for updates, and that's where you'll find whatever I'm up to. Awesome. Uh, next week, guys, we are going to be rolling into some more uh, GH4 lenses, along with hopefully some Minolta glass on the A7S. I've got that in the mail, and who knows <laughs> when it'll show up. I think I actually accidentally ordered it from China. So we'll see you next time <laughs> on DSLR Film Noob Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>